a lot of commitment to even do that. But at some point, you've just created this loop in this universe of people bouncing around to all of the different things that you offer. And most of it is free. Most of them won't buy anything. A lot of them will turn out, but you're just increasing the velocity that people come in and get offered different ways for your work to serve them. And you know, you keep turning that dial up and it just becomes a numbers game at some point. Hey friend, it's David Nabinsky here in New York City. So excited for this podcast with Jay Klaus. As you remember, I had the honor of recording a podcast with Jay in 2019, episode 41. In that episode, we talked a lot about how writing was a through line through Jay's work. And we followed up here on how his portfolio career has evolved over the last year. And like most things, um, conversations and relationships only get better with time. And this episode is further proof of that. We've been learning and creating together since the beginning of my podcasting journey in the summer of 2018. In this episode, you'll learn how to not take yourself out of a project or a job with someone that you look up to, uh, what Jay calls experience ladders, advice that Jay has given to his freelance clients and community about navigating today's environment, lessons learned from creating courses and now two podcasts, and how Jay has been able to find freelance work recently, and so much more. I think you're really going to love this episode. And as always, this episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go with Jay. Cool. So welcome, Jay, back for round two of the podcast. Thank you so much. Round two. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, Jay, I've got a confession to make. Last time we started chatting, we talked about uh, the power of habits and me doing 100 push-ups a day for months and I haven't done them for a couple of months. How many how many days in a row did you do? It's probably about seven months straight. Really? 100 push-ups a day for seven months? Yeah. Are you ripped? But I stopped. No. Were you ripped? No. I was, I was mentally, I developed a habit. And so, and that habit was powerful. And producing a podcast weekly has been a good habit for me as well. I'd like to kind of start off with just like, you know, what type of creativity, uh, creative habits you have and how you think about some habits in your work. I don't think about my creative work as habits, actually. I think of it as commitments. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting. I haven't articulated this before, but I don't think of them as something that I do habitually. I think of them as something that I've committed to do and so they get done because I've made that commitment. So, you know, it started with, a daily blog that I did for a year to prove that I could and that scaled back into a weekly blog at which point I piled on top of that a weekly podcast which at some points became a twice weekly podcast then I piled on top of that a quarterly publication which I dropped actually piled on top of that another weekly blog and another weekly podcast so I I kind of went really extreme just to prove that I could do the output and get like a feel for it. And then uh, I scaled it back to something that felt more sustainable, not just for me, but also for the reader. And then I take very, very seriously any other ongoing commitments I add on top of it. Because anything you do on a consistent basis, especially weekly or more than weekly, becomes a treadmill. It becomes something that, you know, it's, 
it's constantly on your mind of, I need to create this. I need to edit this. I need to ship this. It never really stops. So um, I think of them much more as very strong commitments that I've made <laughs> and not so much as a habit. Okay. And uh, so commitments, treadmill. And it's interesting to hear because when we talked a year ago, a lot of the stuff that we talked about was how writing was the through line for your work and how you're focused on uh, really creating assets as opposed to client work. How, how do you think things have changed related to that line of thinking over the last year? I think it's only gotten more true. On one hand, I'm more committed to and more focused on creative output than I've ever been, you know, um, in the specific things that I create weekly newsletter through jklaus.com, which is called work in progress. I have a weekly podcast now called creative elements that talks to creators who are making an independent living from their work. I have another weekly newsletter through LinkedIn and a pilot program on LinkedIn called independent creative. And then we have the side project podcast called upside that we've been doing for two years. So creative output is at an all-time high. I've pulled back on the mastermind program that I run, which was the bulk of my client work. I'm doing less of that and being pickier with who I work with. But at the same time, I've actually increased the amount of freelance project work because I've had more inbound interest than I've had before. And they're, they're strange projects. They're not your typical freelance work where I would say like, Hey, I'm a copywriter and I do copywriting projects. It's, uh, a lot more unique and one-off. Uh, for example, I do courses for LinkedIn learning. That's one side of things, but I'm also producing a webinar and associated blog post for Atlassian right now. That's not something that I'm going to package and do a lot of. I don't anticipate that'll keep happening that way. Similarly, I'm helping a, uh, an organization, figure out their uh, community infrastructure and plan for bringing in new members into a community. Again, not something that I market. This is just stuff that people see me doing work as it's attached to my own creative work and businesses. And they say, I like the way you're doing that. Can you do that for us? And so that work has actually increased as I've taken down my own mastermind program a little bit. And the net outcome of that is actually higher income and more time to put into the creative work. So it's, it's kind of worked out nicely in that way, but it's also a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit unpredictable. A little bit unpredictable, but it's every time I turn something off, it's this very measured decision of I'm turning this off because I know that if I need it or something to replace it, I can turn it back on quickly or I can turn on this other source really quickly. I haven't felt insecure in any way for a while. Hmm. Are you able to, what is that, that dial button? What is that? Is there maybe talk, go a little bit deeper on that in terms of like, okay, I got this email and someone says interested in working with you on this. Then do you say, okay, I've got these projects, the, these goals, they take up this t amount of time. Here's the type of ROI, any type of way, how you think about, kind of choosing what to work on and not. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a sense that I've developed of just my weekly capacity. I just have a really good sense for all the commitments that I have right now. Am I at capacity or do I have extra capacity? 
Um, and so in real time, that helps me decide whether or not I take on the freelance projects that come to me. If I don't have freelance projects coming to me and I have extra capacity, I just write more or I interview more. Most of the time I'm turning down freelance work because it's not something that's aligned with my creative work or I don't have capacity or I just don't have interest. So yeah, I wish I wish I had a better process for people because I get this question a lot. I wish I had a better process for estimating my own capacity and how long it will take me to get things done. But it's just become kind of a second sense because since college, I've been operating very intensely on deadlines that I set for myself and hold for myself, which has created just kind of a natural understanding of my own um, capacity. Hmm. Okay. And I'd love to maybe just dive into the, on the output side, there was, uh, in addition to your accelerator, you also have created some courses recently, uh, would be kind of curious as to how, uh, you thought about kind of creating courses and, you know, doing the research behind it and figuring out how it's going to work and not work just, yeah, maybe a little deep dive on that. Yeah. I've, I've learned a lot about this both naturally and because I, I took an interest to it. But I started in the course course world because of LinkedIn Learning, and they came to me. They gave me the opportunity to create some courses related to product management. Um, that was three-ish years ago. And so I did those courses, and I kind of weaved my way into other courses within the platform. Now I've published two freelancing courses. One of them was huge. And um, I'm just finishing up now a course on raising capital for small businesses. Everything LinkedIn Learning does is direct-to-camera, you know, stand, look at the person, talk to the camera. Sometimes there's animations and overlays. And some people learn really effective that way. I'm not someone who is an auditory learner. I'm very much a visual learner. I think online learning is really powerful, but most marketplaces I'm a little bit dubious of and prefer to distribute myself so that there are actual good outcomes and stronger brand advocates for the content. Yeah. And I like how you, I think the way you're also correct me if I'm wrong, some of the way I'm reading this is like doing it, but then also creating the community and having other types of kind of offerings and services around some of these things where it's not just, you're not creating a one-off, but also then the people that take it. And it's just a better way to everybody to kind of get in touch. Yeah. I think, I think the marketplace is going further and further that direction. And it's frustrating because actually most LMS systems, most learning management systems like Teachable and Thinkific and Kajabi and Podia, these platforms are great, except they don't give you a real tool set to create community and peer-to-peer experiences within the courses, which I think is a huge, huge miss. And all these course creators who get it, who are like, oh, I'm not just selling the courses. I'm selling the entire experience behind supporting me as a creator, buying into my way of thinking, instead of having a one-to-one many times relationship to my audience, I want to have a community, you know, I'm, I'm communicating to my audience, but they can also communicate to each other. And that creates a lot of value. Uh, Seth does a great job of this, but he has to hobble together a ton of programs. Like he's using, um, I forget the learning platform that he uses discourse. Yeah. That's a forum. That's not even an LMS. Like he uses a forum and puts video, puts his lessons on Vimeo so that you can have this discussion. And that's not what the discourse platform is built for like he's stretching discourse to its max so that he can do the community-based support that he wants for his courses which is great and effective and for some reason the lms platforms just aren't doing it and then do you think it's a very valuable skill to create a course and and how would you compare that to creating a podcast 
Totally. I mean, I think creating anything is a valuable skill. Um, I think it's a totally different exercise than doing a podcast unless you're creating a very packaged, highly produced podcast. You know, like a course is we have a beginning, we have an end, we have learning objectives for each of these lessons. There's a reason for each of them. It's all one person. And we're very clear on the outcome of this entire course when you take it. It's a lot of work. Like if I could share my screen somehow to the listener right now and show them the spreadsheet of how I worked through producing my own course. I had a Google spreadsheet tab for each course. I had a row for each lesson. And then I had columns for all of the pieces of that lesson, exercise files, the intro, the on-screen, the voiceover. And my life for like six months was just changing hundred cells per course from red to green by going through all the steps that needed to happen to produce all the pieces of those courses. Like it's highly produced, high quality, takes a lot of thought and intention. And sure, everything is a, is a spectrum of effort and production. You could certainly have, you know, lower, lower production courses where someone is just so good at their stuff. They sit on camera for an hour, tell you everything you need to know about X, break it into six, 10 minute videos. And that's the course. And for some people, there would be a lot of value there. That just wasn't what I was going for. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, switching gears a little bit to kind of the freelance work, uh, and some of the, uh, through unreal and kind of given the current environment, you know, what type of advice did you give to the people that are now the client prospects look a lot different. The market has changed. How, how, you know, given that you've got, been in this, in this world for a little while, uh, how how are you kind of thinking about it and what kind of advice do you give to the people that are like, okay, I see this new paradigm, crap. Yeah, it's tough for a lot of people. Like there are a lot of industries and practices that are so predicated on being in person. It's really hard to overcome. And I'm not here to pretend that everything can be just done virtually the way it was done. Think about photographers, videographers, like that work is done in person wedding planners, event planners in general, like that stuff is done in person. So that's really tough. Musicians, what are they doing? Really hard. But generally the advice that I gave to folks was it's not going to be better if you do nothing, you know, like you've got to, you've got to fight and do what you can. And to me, the best place to start was to think about what does your work look like in a virtual environment? Hopefully there's a clear answer to that. If not, you're going to have to find some sort of answer to that. Then go back to the people that you already know and who already support you. I refer to them as advocates. Go back to your advocates, ask them, how are you doing? You know, ask them a lot of questions, be empathetic, ask them how they're doing through that conversation. They may volunteer a problem that is something you can help with, whether it's paid or unpaid, and that could be great. But often at some point, they'll also ask you, how are you doing? And too often, our automatic response to how are you doing is to paint the glossiest picture possible. I'm doing great. Yeah, things are fine. I'm, I'm doing well. But that's, that just shuts down the opportunity for someone to help you. you know? So if you, you can still be enthusiastic and optimistic. You can say, um, things are okay. You know, could be worse. I'm excited about this over here. This other thing over here is doing pretty well but I'm struggling a little bit with cash flow, and I'm, I'm looking to get some more clients who can, I can help with X, Y, or Z. 
I would start there and, and just have all those conversations that you can as quickly as possible so that while they're in their day-to-day, also probably talking to other people who may be having problems, they can keep you in mind as someone to refer and recommend them to work with. That's the first thing I'd do. And then second, you got to think long-term in all things. If your business has been totally upended by this and you don't see a way out, you have to reckon with that. And that might be looking for some sort of new position. It might be becoming a virtual assistant for a little bit, even though that's um, not the type of work that you've been accustomed to and reimagining what your business can look like that can resist something like this. You know, I feel very, very fortunate that the work that I do is all virtual by design and I haven't seen much of an impact from this. If anything, I've actually seen a lot of my inbound improve. And it's because from the beginning, I, I just designed this to be really flexible. And so for a lot of people, it's, it's a question of how can you design your work to be uh, resilient through times like this? And how can you design your own brand to be something that people lean on and say, well, if things get tough, I know I can still depend on David, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Well, not specifically, but... <laughs> Uh, no, you can. <laughs> um, the first part there is really interesting. And this that's I, this idea that I've been thinking about recently is how to approach a catch-up uh, call. It's not a, hey, I want to talk about this. Are you interested in that? But it's more of a, a catch-up call. And I love how you say being open, being kind of making it a two, two-way, two-sided conversation. I feel like the catch-up call is a hard thing. I know I struggle with it sometimes where I'm used to wanting to express interest in this, offer help with that. And I know that I'm missing a wide swath of a potential conversation. Yeah. I think you, I think you should just approach everything like an empathetic fact finding mission, you know, don't go in it with any pretense of pitching. You can certainly try to anticipate directions that might go and plan for them, but I like to go into conversations and be really open and not have much of an agenda other than trying to listen deeply and identify problems that I or my clients can help with. And so it really is just asking, how are you doing? And what feels hard about this right now? And what are you struggling with? And sometimes those answers are very painful for the person and not at all the core of what you do, but are within your capabilities. And you can make that offer to, to help them out. I think the enemy of any sales call or potential sales call is coming off as thirsty anyway. This is a really bad time to come off as thirsty, Mm. you know? So go in and um, just assume that it's going to be nothing and listen intently and ask empathetic questions. And, you know, more times than not, that becomes more productive anyway, because people want to support one another. They don't want to support people who, um, seem predatory in some way, you know? Yeah. Empathetic fact finding. I'm going to use that. I like that a lot. It's a good, <laughs> I've never said it before, <laughs> so I'm going to use it more now too. <laughs> um, cool. And then you also, you mentioned there about, and I know we've talked about it before, but about referrals. So advocates are also then referrals and that nature. So, uh, I know you, you spoke, you speak often about how to, you know, encourage people to be your best advocate and referrals and help, help them help you. Most people in your life are not going to be clients, but anyone in your life can be someone who thinks highly of you and has their 
you know, an eye out for you in their day to day, if they know what you do, if they like you, if they can explain it to other people. So by thinking first with any interaction, how can I make this person an advocate for me and my business, as opposed to how can I make this person a client? The best way to make someone an advocate is to make someone a friend. And we've all been trained to make friends for a very, very long time. Just go about it that way. And, and naturally, they're going to be more likely to share the good word and refer you to other people. I like to think of it as the acronym ABC, advocate before client, because even your clients are most likely advocates for you before they become a client. Even if that conversation happens really quickly and they quickly become a client, they are advocating to themselves to hire you to do the job. So always shoot first for how do I make a friend? How do I make an advocate? And if that turns into a client, either directly or indirectly, that's great. A new, a new ABC there. Instead of, <laughs> instead right. of, there's, probably, there's probably a million ABCs <laughs> out there. So don't Google ABC acronym. I'm sure there's a lot of better examples. Any thoughts on uh, kind of new ideas on creating long-term assets in this, in this new environment? I mean, obviously, we're recording a podcast. We talked about courses. A- any thoughts on long-term assets that people could look into? It's interesting how you go through different seasons and your opinion on things change. You know, for a long time, I was just a giant advocate of get out there, ship stuff, be consistent. It'll work out. And that may be true, but I'm even more of an advocate now of just being intentional from the beginning. Like if you, if you can't be consistent and ship quality work, you're screwed. It doesn't matter. You're not going to make a living from that work if you can't show up and do it consistently. And don't give me the argument about Tim Urban, who publishes like once or twice a year at this point, um, saying that he's one of the best bloggers on the internet. That's true, but you're not Tim Urban. So if you can't show up consistently with high quality work, not even worth having a discussion. Assuming that you can do that, then you owe it to yourself to think a lot more intentionally from the beginning of how will this all work? If this all goes well and goes according to plan, why would it work? How would it work? And I'm talking about things like how would this earn money? If you want to be a blogger and you want to write and have a bunch of readers, okay, how does that earn money? Even if it does go well, is it from affiliate sales? Amazon just cut their affiliate sale program by more than 50% for some people. So that could work, but it's not as easy as it once was. What's more resilient than that? Well, is it building authority and then doing speaking? That's viable. That could work. Is it building a small enough audience that you can serve through a mastermind program like I do with Unreal Collective? That's working. That's pretty nice. You know, think through what does that outcome look like? Are you writing a book? Are you doing courses? Are you selling advertisements? And think of that as a larger portfolio, you know, to the point of your podcast here, David. How does this all add up and build upon itself? I'm incredibly excited because I feel like I'm in the midst of starting to see a little bit of a compounding effect with a lot of stuff that I do. And that comes from having a regular email audience that now I can send emails twice a week to say, here's my regular email, but also if you're interested, you can opt in to hear about the new episode of Creative Elements. That became a built-in audience for the podcast when I launched it. In that podcast, I'll call out like, hey, if you have thoughts on this episode, tweet at me or follow me on Instagram at jklaus. That turns into followers there. When I post a new episode, I share it on Instagram, you know, like all these things play really well together and they're all assets and properties that took a long time to build up to start to have that push pull effect on each other. But the outcome is now I have three 
technically four website properties that all link back to each other. As one of those sites starts to do better from an organic search perspective or from getting people transferred there from podcast show notes, for example, all those sites link to each other. So if I can very quickly fall into this whole universe of Jay's creative work by finding his podcast, looking at the show notes, now I'm on his website. Now I see that connected to his website is Freelancing School or Unreal Collective. I can go to Freelancing School, sign up for the free online course. That gets a five-day email campaign that now puts you into my email newsletter list, which will also upsell you the course. You know, like all these things are interconnected. It takes a long time to build all that and a lot of commitment, you know, back to the beginning of this conversation, a lot of commitment to even do that. But at some point, you've just created this loop and this universe of people bouncing around to all of the different things that you offer. And most of it is free. Most of them won't buy anything. A lot of them will turn out, but you're just increasing the velocity that people come in and get offered different ways for your work to serve them. And, you know, you keep turning that dial up and it just becomes a numbers game at some point. Hmm. Any new uh, software that, uh, like I know you're talking about the, how it all connects and stuff, but any either tools or services that you think uh, would be helpful? I've, you know, my site's on Squarespace and I've dabbled in a little bit of things, but uh, to have like a tech stack like yours, is there? Yeah. Um, if I were to start over, I might look at Webflow right now. Webflow seems like there's a lot of flexibility and long-term potential on the platform. Everything that I build is on WordPress. It served me very, very well. It's a tried and true content management system. It ranks well. It, it just does really well. Integrate that with whatever your email marketing software is, whether it's MailChimp or ConvertKit or something else. I would probably start with ConvertKit if I were restarting, even though it's going to be a little bit more expensive. At this point, it would be so painful for me to migrate from MailChimp to ConvertKit. I don't know if it'll ever happen. Uh, my LMS, my courses are on Podia, Unreal, websites in WordPress. Uh, the payment is through WooCommerce and, and Stripe. And our community is in Slack. I'm moving to a new community platform soon for most of my stuff, I think. But I won't name drop that yet because I haven't made the full commitment. Yeah, I mean, that's the basics. It's not super, super complicated. But, you know, anything that you are investing time into building, any digital property, even your Instagram profile, is a long-term investment into your own work that it seems like a lot of work right now. And it seems like it's not doing anything for you. You just have to keep showing up and doing it for a long time. Again, it needs to be quality. It needs to be good. Don't just like take a bad stock photo and overlay a Dale Carnegie quote on it and, and think that's going to move the needle a year from now. But you got you to put the work in. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm definitely seeing it now with your, your second podcast. It can, it's super inspiring to see the level of quality, the emails that you're sending out related to it. it, it it's, it's remarkable. And, um, Thanks, man. That means a lot. And actually the word remarkable means a lot because uh, some people use it and it's just kind of a offhand adjective. But to me, it is meaningful. It means it's worth talking about. And if you're going to do creative work and you want to make a living doing creative work, people have to talk about it. You have to make something that is remarkable, literally, for it to really yield results. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thanks for the work. Um, <laughs> well, cool. Um, I feel like we touched a lot about, uh, talked about a lot of stuff here. There was one other idea that I wanted to talk about was experience ladders. 
as people are kind of transitioning and pivoting and stuff like that, I think you've got a really unique take on this that I would love to just hear some quick thoughts on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. That's um, someone that I listened to his podcast. He would call this uh, one of my greatest hits, quote unquote, and I've kind of stopped playing it. I need to go back and play some of my hits. Experience ladders are what I refer to um, when it comes to this idea of a lot of us have imposter syndrome when someone is thinking about hiring us to do work. And it's because we, we almost automatically estimate and quantify, call it legitimacy of the person hiring us versus our own perceived legitimacy of ourselves. And we think, wow, why would this person hire me to do this? And we get scared, we get in our heads. To give an example, one of my first clients through Unreal sold a company a few years back made millions and millions of dollars on the sale of this company. And when he joined Unreal, he bought the coaching package. He wanted to meet with me bi-weekly um, as this coach. And it just blew my mind. I had a hard time thinking through what could this person possibly want to pay me to help him learn something when he's already had this outcome. This doesn't make sense. But what you need to realize is when someone's hiring you, they're hiring you for a very specific job to be done. And they're equating your skill on that axis to be higher than theirs. That's what I think of as a ladder. If you have skills in graphic design and someone who is a wonderfully talented engineer or photographer, whatever skill they're great at, and they come to, to you and say, I want to hire you for your graphic design work, it's really easy to get in your own head and say, why would they hire me? Well, it's because they're looking at that ladder and you're ahead of them on that ladder. They're helping, they're looking to you to pull them upwards on that ladder. You don't need to worry about all the other skills that they're great at, the things that they've done really, really well, that maybe they could teach you a thing or two and maybe you would hire them to, to teach you those things. That's not what they're hiring you for. And so if you find yourself questioning, why is this person looking to me on this thing? It's because on that axis, on that ladder of experience, they're looking up to you and you should embrace that and be you know, proud of that. But I think a lot of us have a hard time embracing the things that we truly are good at and recognizing that we're really good at it because we think about, we all have our own story around money. If you're good at graphic design and someone's paying you hundreds or thousands of dollars to do graphic design, you might think, well, that's crazy. I wouldn't pay thousands of dollars for someone to do graphic design. It's because you're good at it and you understand that it's doable. They're not, it's inaccessible to them it's easier for them to pay that money and worth it for them to pay that money to get that result. Yeah. It's so true. And I think it applies to advice. I feel like it applies to just a lot of, it, it definitely is a greatest hit Jay. Um, you got, you, I, and I'm lucky to, to be, to be a part of this. Cause I see, I know this, this topic and this idea is going to go uh, many places for you, Jay. I'll put on the album. Do you think anyone's going to, this is a thought I'm having in real time. Do you think anyone will create an album of their greatest hits that are just 10 minute segments of interviews they've done on podcasts. Yeah. I would probably buy that for some people. If I could buy a $10 greatest hits album of Ryan holiday in his interview segments, you know, top 10 answers Ryan holiday has done on podcasts. I'd pay for that album. Cool. Maybe, <laughs> maybe somebody, maybe some, hopefully someone listens to this and figures it out, right? That's about creating value. There you go. There you go. Take it, run with it. Awesome, Jay. Well, really appreciate all your time, your expertise, your friendship, and so much more. Uh, please let listeners know where they can um, follow up and uh, support your work. 
For sure. Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, um, would love for you to subscribe to Work in Progress, my weekly newsletter at jklaus.com. And if you're a podcast fan, which obviously you are for listening to this, would love for you to check out my new show, Creative Elements, which you can find by searching Creative Elements. I've interviewed Seth Godin, who David has also talked to on this show, James Clear, Grant Baldwin, Matt Giovannisi, Vanessa Van Edwards. A lot of those are to be released yet, but they're going to be really good. And I think you'll like it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jay. Thanks, David. Hey, friend. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Portfolio Career Podcast. Wanted to also let you know about my monthly newsletter called One Email Away, where I fundamentally believe that we are all one email away from new opportunities. And if there's a way that I could potentially help you to connect with other people, I would love to do that. So one email away, um, you can sign up for my newsletter on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. You can also see the one email away section, but just want to take this moment to say thank you for, for listening to this episode. Really excited for us to build and grow our portfolio careers together.